you will join me in prayer. Lord, we are very grateful to gather uh, together this morning as your people, to unite our hearts in worship, in fellowship, in the joy that is ours because of the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. God, I pray that today you would give us a greater desire for more of Christ. You would give us greater affections for Jesus. That we would see the things of this world less and less. That we would see Christ more and more. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your people. Thank you for worship. Thank you for the church. You are good to us. To have called us from darkness into light, to grant us new life, to grant us salvation in Christ, apart from any works of our own, but fully upon the work of His, that we can walk justified, not condemned, righteous before You. Thank You, Lord. We pray that this morning that our hearts are fixed on that reality that we would worship you with glad hearts, with a desire for greater joy in him. Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who come with sorrow, who come with heartbreak. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, that your word would give them joy, give them satisfaction in Christ that you would help us all, Lord, to not be tossed to and fro by circumstances and emotions, but rather that we would rest firmly in the finished work of Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look to your word this morning, that you would give us wisdom and clarity, that you would help us to see clearly what you have given that we would be instructed, we would be convicted and challenged, that we would be seeking to please you in our lives. Please do that work. Illumine the Scriptures for us, O Holy Spirit, as we turn to the Word. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are not with us this morning. We ask, God, that you would bless them wherever they are, as they travel, as they worship in other churches, that you would bless them, the teaching of the Word, and faithful believers that they meet with this morning. I pray, God, that all of us would have a great delight in today as the Lord's day, that we would rest, that we would seek greater fellowship with our fellow believers that we would honor today for your glory. We pray for those who are sick and recovering. Lord, we're so thankful for the opportunity to pray for them, to minister to them. We pray, God, that you help us to have hearts that constantly desire to do good unto others, to love them well, to serve them, and to provide for them as we are able. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the body of Christ, and thank you for the work you have done to unite us together in Jesus. Lord, give us wisdom and direction now as we turn to the Scriptures, that we would be wise in Christ. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7, we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 6. The title of my sermon this morning is An Old Man's Wisdom. This is part 1 of 2. Our key words for our worshipers in training are wisdom, name, and rebuke. If you've not been with us, we have been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, verse by verse, and we find ourselves here this morning, and we will read... Uh, these verses in just a moment. I was thinking about this passage and the wisdom of an old man, and I realized one of the great privileges in my life has been that I've been able to grow up with all four of my grandparents still living. To this day, they're all still living, all four of them. All of them live in Iowa. I don't see them a lot, but we do keep in touch and get to see them periodically. I was thinking about them individually, all four of them very unique, all four of them have very different stories, each pair is very different than the other pair, and when I go to visit them, it's like going back and forth into two different worlds, they're only about four miles apart from each other. One pair of grandparents is Roman Catholic, they keep Marlboro in business, and they watch the game show network all day long in the Cubs when they're on TV. The other set of grandparents are independent Baptist fundamentalists. They think it is a sin for my wife to wear pants to church. My grandfather, a retired farmer who can fix anything at all that you would put in front of him, given enough time, duct tape, and bubble gum. So they're very, very different sets of people. They have a vast array of stories and experiences and expertise and knowledge to draw from. A combined total of their ages is 340 years of life that's been lived. As I thought about this, I realized one of my great regrets in life was not understanding earlier on what a gift it is to have access to the experience and wisdom of those who've lived life. I've not taken advantage of this great gift as I should have and missed out on some incredible wisdom as a result. But it's kind of how it is with all of us, right? There is really little evidence in our world that mankind is breaking out of this long-standing habit of repeating the past. In large part because we don't know the past, because we fail to ask questions and learn from those who are older and wiser than us. The appreciation of the lessons of history does not come naturally to those who are young and restless. We tend toward wanting to gain experience all for ourselves. We grow impatient with the wisdom of the wise. We so easily imagine that we will be the ones who figure it all out and that we can do life properly. And if we mess it up, big deal, right? We all have to make our mistakes, unless, of course, those mistakes are deadly. Proverbs 1.7 says, fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the issue is not experience. The issue is wisdom versus foolishness. 
It is very wise for us to ask questions of those and to listen to those who have lived life. There's a certain kind of wisdom that is only gained with age, with years. I'm thankful that I'm still fortunate enough to have grandparents and parents to sit with, to talk to, to listen to. Not everyone is is as, as fortunate. But thank God for the church, right? Thank God for those within the church. And the very thing that we are instructed to in the church, that older women are to invest in the lives of younger women, to show them what it is to be a godly mother, a godly wife, how to balance the life of the home and everything else going on. Older men investing in younger men, how to be husbands and fathers and good churchmen and servants. And of course, we thank God for the Scriptures. There are many examples throughout the Bible of lives being lived. I'm thankful especially for Solomon's life as we've been looking at it. There's much to learn. There's much wisdom to gain from the life of Solomon. If you recall, for six chapters, he's been saying, essentially, I'm better than you. I'm more powerful, I'm more wealthy, I have bigger houses, yards, more livestock, I had 700 wives, 300 concubines, people cook my food, and if I got really lazy, they'd probably chew it for me. You will never be as successful, you will never be as wealthy, you will never have more sex, better parties, more entertainment, it won't happen. I've done it, and it was better than anything that you have done. In other words, nothing you can have, nothing you can do that will be anything other than a repeat of what Solomon has lived. And your repeat is C-team compared to what he did. 5,000 square foot home? Eh, it's nice, but I've got 50 of them and they're all two times bigger. Nice crepe myrtles and dogwood trees in the front yard? I planted entire forests. You had a huge birthday bash with 100 people. I had parties with 20,000 people every single night and had food and entertainment for them, all the wine they could want, you name it, it was there. Now Solomon's not bragging about all of this. In fact, we see in Ecclesiastes, he's an old man now, and he's looking back at all of this, and he's saying, what was the point of it all? What is the point of all that I have experienced? So this book is Solomon unpacking his early life, searching for meaning and purpose and all of these things, and reminding us it's not there. These things do not satisfy, they do not produce joy, and in and of themselves are meaningless. Everything apart from God is meaningless. We've heard that since chapter 1. Now we get to chapter 7, and in the midst of this, is Solomon, the old man, consider that he's sitting down with us at a coffee shop and saying to us, let me unpack some wisdom that comes from life that's lived. I've got a lot to share with you, so so listen. So now we're sitting down to black coffee with this man who has chased everything that we chase, and the only difference is that he's gotten it. He wants to help us to see clearly, to think rightly so we're not doomed to a life of meaninglessness and waste and regret. So Solomon sort of stops with the, the, 
the constant refrain of the book so far of vanity, vanity, all is vanity, all is chasing after the wind. And he moves into a series of proverbial sayings that are chock full of wisdom for us. It's very similar in some ways to reading the book of Proverbs. So let's go. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now Solomon begins this series of statements that we're going to look at this week and next based on this good, better dichotomy. This is good, but this is better. So he's working through, in some ways, an answer to the question that he posed in chapter 6 and verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So he's answering this question. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, in the Hebrew language, name and ointment have a one-letter difference. So Solomon's doing a little word play here with those reading it in the Hebrew. Here's the point he makes. There are a lot of things you can do to make yourself better externally, right? Your hair, your makeup, your clothes, you can go to the gym, you can do laser hair removal or Botox, wrinkle cream, facelift, nose job, you name it. The externals can look better. If you can do it and make the external look better, human beings are going to go for it. Solomon's reference is to that which is an absolute luxury in his day. Precious ointments, cologne, smell-good spray, perfume. That was a luxury in Solomon's day. Now, consider that those around Solomon weren't showering every day. They were getting wet in the river maybe once a week. So perfume is not a bad thing. It's a luxury, but one you probably hope that your friends had, and if not, you were willing to be a little generous. But all these things can do is look good, smell good, we can wear the right clothes, we can drive the right car, we can live in the right neighborhood. But old man Solomon is looking at all of us across the table right now and he's saying, but who cares at all about any of this if when your name is mentioned, people roll their eyes and laugh and make jokes? Sure, tuck in your shirt, whiten your teeth, But your character is far more important than what's on the exterior. We half expect Solomon to say this as an old man, right? This is something I just think is awesome about my grandpa. The guy is 86 years old and does not care at all about what he wears or what his hair looks like. My grandma's always chasing him around with a comb and a new set of clothes because he doesn't matter. Well... She's not chasing him. They're 86. They're not chasing anybody. I make it sound like they're running laps through the house, playing hide-and-seek or something. They're not chasing anybody. But they don't care about the external. The focus is character, the heart. It's a good reminder to us of this reality. The external is pretty meaningless. As I think of my grandfather, the external is meaningless to him, but meet anybody who knows him, 
And they'll tell you he's gold, a very godly man. I don't agree with all of his theology, but he loves the Lord. He seeks to please God every minute of his life. And there will not be a day when the name of Marlon Bunting is named and people scoff and roll their eyes. His name is a good name. His character is golden. So Solomon is instructing us, have some depth in your life. Don't wait till you're an old man. Do it now. Reputation matters because character matters, and good character is far greater than anything external. Our skin will wrinkle, our hair will fall out, our clothes will go out of style. But what do others say about the kind of man or woman that we are? To have a good name is far greater than to be admired because of what you look like, what you have. Look at the second part of verse 1. The day of death than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. So dying is better than being born, is what he says. So he says, stop worrying about the external. Start worrying about the internal. Don't just look the part, but play the part. Now he says, what's better than being born? Dying. In other words, funerals are better than birthdays. Now Solomon's not referencing his own death, but rather the constant reality of life. That people we know, people we love, die. And we are driven to bereavement time and time and time again. Well, why is this better, Solomon? Because it draws our focus to the crucial, ultimate question of life's meaning and the reality of eternity. This really is an indication of just how wrapped up in the world we are. How often do you hear believers say, or have you said yourself, that you don't want to die because there's so much that you want to do before then? If that's our mindset, we don't understand rightly this life compared to the next. Do I want to see my kids grow up and be a grandpa? Yeah, sure, I do. Do I want to live old age with my wife? Yeah, I want that. But what's greater? What's greater than that? Philippians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Is that your perspective? Listen, my wife, my kids, my church, hobbies, job, home, all of this, all of these are wonderful gifts from God, but they exist to serve this purpose most ultimately, to point me to Christ. They are people and they are things and they pale in comparison to being in the eternal presence of Jesus. In other words, if I'd rather stay here and squeeze all that I can out of this life than to be with Christ, I'm probably worshiping an idol. I idolize the people and the things in my life. 
So our calling is to enjoy the gifts in this life, but to understand them as a means to point us to Christ and to know it is far better to be with Christ than with anyone or anything on this earth. We live for Christ and we see and we understand that to die is gain. It's gain. Look at verse 2. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. So now Solomon explains in a little bit more detail why funerals are better than birthdays. The principal value of funerals for all of us is that when we're there, we are confronted with the reality that we will die. Solomon's addressed this previously. But to go to a funeral is of greater value than feasting at a party. He doesn't condemn that. In fact, remember, he said time and again, enjoy life, eat, drink, be happy with what God has blessed you with. But when we're in the midst of a joyful gathering for a feast, when we're cutting cutting into our steak and enjoying Cabernet or sweet tea or whatever it is with our friends, we're not thinking about the same realities as when we're looking at death. Death reminds us of realities that we otherwise sort of blot out of our mind. But every funeral anticipates our own. We're going there. We will be there. So Solomon's statement about the house of mourning is a reference to the custom of people paying their last respects in the home of the dead. Jesus did this, remember, at Lazarus' death. When he died, he went to the home of Lazarus. We do it at church or funeral homes. Whatever the custom, it is good for us to have encounters with death. And this runs completely contrary to our cultural mindset. We live in a culture that constantly seeks to deny the reality of our mortality. It can't be controlled, so instead we simply try to deny it. It is increasingly rare for anybody to see dead bodies or to watch a coffin get lowered into the ground or even to mention death. We talk about the departed who have passed away or are no longer with us because they have gone on to a better place. But essentially, they have done everything except for what they actually did, which was die. Martin Luther said, It is good for us to invite death into our presence when it is still at a distance and not on the move. Spurgeon said, Let us talk about preparing to die. It is the greatest thing we have to do, and we have soon to do it. So let us talk and think something about it. Death helps us to pray with Moses. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. A place for that wise heart is a good funeral where we recall that our own days are numbered and that each day must count for eternity lest they be wasted. Great quote from Walker Piercy. He writes, The present day unbeliever is crazy because he finds himself born into a world of endless wonders, having no notion 
how he got here. A world in which he eats, sleeps, works, grows old, gets sick, and dies. Takes his comfort and ease, plays along with the game, watches TV, drinks his drink, laughs for all the world as if his prostate were not growing cancerous, his arteries not turning to chalk, his brain cells not dying by the millions, as if the worms were not going to have him in no time at all. Hanging on the edge of a precipice engulfed by terror is not the time or place to learn about emergency rock climbing procedures. You have to learn about them before you start the expedition. Likewise, we have to start learning about death now while we are still healthy, before we are blinded by denial and fighting valiantly for hope. Solomon's right. It is far greater to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, to the party. This is where wisdom is gained. This is good for the heart. The heart, a word that Solomon uses repeatedly in verses 2 through 4. The heart is the center of who we are, our thinking, our feeling, our willing core of our being. The next two verses read very similarly. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon creates an interesting paradox here. True happiness, true joy is deepened by and developed by the sorrow we may undergo. Seems backwards. The point is not that we should be sad, as sad as we possibly can, as if this will do us a lot of good. There is no virtue in adopting a martyr complex. Sorrows like death must be turned around to some positive purpose or they will consume us altogether. There is no need to beg trouble or to create difficulties for ourselves. Those will come in the normal course of events and are sufficient to test our faith. For the child of God, they can be a means of drawing us closer to the Lord. Psalm 30 and verse 5, Weeping may endure for a night. But what's the result? But joy comes in the morning. Joy is the redemptive side of sorrow. Sorrow, grief, frustration, anger, pain, death, these are things that God uses at times to grow us, to mature us, to strengthen us, to make us more eager for Him, for the eternal. So Solomon's pointing out two options that we can take when sorrow comes. The first is we can head right into the house of mourning where God has us. We can surround ourselves with family, with friends, with people who will pray with us, walk with us, encourage us while we are being operated on by God Almighty. That's what the wise do. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Sorrow, grief, pain, frustration, you name it, it comes for all of us. The wise surround themselves with godly men and women who will pray and protect and walk and encourage, but the fool seeks refuge to numb his pain. 
He uses mirth to cover up his pain. Parties, pornography, substances, comedy, whatever it is, instead of running to Jesus and seeking Christ, to operate and break down and work and grow and reveal and move through, instead they pretend there's no pain. And they seek to numb the pain. And they make their reality whatever vice it is. The house of mirth, new gadgets, new clothes. This is the house of mirth. Something's not right in me. Something's wrong. I don't feel right. Something's off. I'm not, syn- I'm not synced up to reality. So what am I going to do? Numb it. Let's head to the house of mirth. And the wisdom of the old man, he's looking at us and he says, that's foolish. It's absolutely Foolish. He goes on in verse 5, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Solomon's telling us, you know what I'm most grateful for? Of all that I've acquired, of all that I've built, of all that I've done, do you know what I'm most grateful for in my life? Deep, real friends who are not afraid to say, there is a problem and the problem is you. Sometimes sorrow and grief and pain are because of the actions of other people. But sometimes we don't do anything. Sometimes sorrow, grief, frustration, and pain are self-inflicted. And Solomon tells us, I am unbelievably grateful that I had the kind of men in my life that weren't afraid to walk up to my face and say, you're the issue, you are the problem, you are what's wrong. Listen, I've never enjoyed that, have you? I see the benefit in it and I appreciate it. I appreciate the love of those who do it, but I don't enjoy it. This is an area that I really think determines the maturity of a believer. Can you receive the rebuke of a faithful friend? Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. This can be translated also as faithful is the open rebuke of a friend. In other words, the truly wise person welcomes the sincere rebuke of a friend, one who aims to edify, one who aims to protect. It is wisdom to surround oneself with people who will directly, clearly, and faithfully correct us when we are beginning to walk off the path. But if you're anything like me at all, your natural tendency is to say, me? You know, I'm really glad that you bring that up because while you've been noticing some things about me, let me tell you, I have really been noticing some things about you. So let's talk about those things instead. In our sinful nature, it is so easy for us to look at our own sin and make it about everybody else so that we don't have to deal with it. And so my sin leads me to become a victim instead of one who has actually sinned. So we play the I'm not as bad as them game, the I didn't kill anybody game. It is true Christian maturity when we can say, You know what, brother? You know what, sister? You're right. I have sinned against God and I am so thankful for your grace and your love and your patience with me and your willingness to point it out to me because I need to have my blind spots pointed out because I can't see them. 
and we do the hard work of reconciling where sin has entered into circumstances and relationships. And that's tough, isn't it? But it's a mark of Christian maturity, and it grows us to be more like Christ. The second part of Proverbs 27.6 is very similar to the second part of verse 5 here in Ecclesiastes 7. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Solomon wrote, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. He has us pegged, right? What do we want to run to when we're being rebuked? The kisses of an enemy. The song of fools. Their intentions are wrong. Their motives are wicked. Their words insincere. But we instinctively desire flattery over rebuke. Even if it comes from those who don't walk in the wisdom and fear of the Lord. So Solomon's wisdom here is incredible. Hey, wise people will put men and women around them who are not afraid to engage them at a very deep level. Fools put people around them who will not say, you're wrong. They will instead put people around them who sing songs to them and encourage sinful behavior and wickedness, sometimes all under the umbrella of spirituality. So there's a good question for all of us in this. What kind of relationships are we seeking to build? What type of people are we seeking to have put around us? Are you inviting correction into your life, or are you seeking those who will stroke your ego and make you feel better about your sin? I hope all of us will seek to have people in our lives who will confront us and correct us, and that God would mature us to receive that correction, that we could walk in a more pleasing manner with Him. I am very, very thankful that we in this church have elders for that very reason. There have been times when they've had to tell me, you're wrong. I need that. I don't love it initially, but... I need it, and I'm thankful for it. And I have a few other friends that I've talked to, and I've said, listen, talk to me. How am I doing? Be honest with me. You've got to be honest. I can't grow if you don't tell me where I'm weak. Help me. And I want to invite that kind of feedback. And they'll give that to me, and we'll begin the process of inspecting my life, seeking the Lord, repenting, reconciling, and growing. We all need that. It's beautiful. And I hope that the Lord will mature us in that more and more and more. The writer of Hebrews recognizes the difficulty in this. Hebrews 12:11 says, "For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it." How are we seeking to be wise? Are those people in our lives that will confront us because they love us or are we rejecting them? On those grounds. Look at verse 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This is also vanity. And Solomon uses another play on words in the Hebrew here. Thorns and pot have a one letter difference. So what is he talking about? Thorns, rather than normal charcoal for a fire, is an inferior fuel. There's more sound than substance. There's a lot of crackling, but not a whole lot of usefulness. 
This is the character of foolishness and flattery. It is short-lived. It will flame up quickly, but it will not burn very long. And as a result, burning thorns give off very little heat. There's more flame than fire. And so it is with fools. Their laughter is void of warmth and usefulness. It may come quickly, but it dies out just as fast. He who laughs the loudest rarely laughs the longest. Jesus said, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. The Lord was referencing the fires of the final judgment when foolish laughter will forever perish. Some people simply seek to laugh their way through life all the way to the grave. The English poet John John Gay's epitaph reads, Life's a jest and all things show it. I thought so once and now I know it. Thus says the fool. There's no laughing matter in death or in hell that comes afterward for anyone who dies apart from Christ. This is why Solomon reminds us that it is good to hear the rebuke of the wise. Someone who cares enough to confront us will tell us to get serious about life and to be serious about death. Listening to the criticism of a godly friend can save our souls. Wise people will say all of the things that Ecclesiastes says. They will tell us that living for pleasure and working for selfish gain are striving after the wind. They will tell us that God has a time for everything, including a time to be born and a time to die. They will tell us that two are better than one in facing all of the toils and trials of life. They will tell us that because God is in heaven and we are on earth, we should be careful what we say. They will tell us that money will never satisfy our souls. In short, they will tell us not to live life for today, but to live life for eternity. So the call to us is to be wise and to go to the place where we can receive wise and life-giving correction. Well, first and foremost, the Scriptures. Reading our Bibles, listening to Christ-centered sermons, spending more time with people who are further along in their spiritual pilgrimage than you are. And when you hear something serious about spiritual things, that you don't laugh it off, but you take it to heart. Consider it and work it out in application. But here's the deal. Old man Solomon has given us some incredible wisdom that has come from his experience. He lived life in the fast lane, to say the least. He's been there, done that. I think we should listen. We should heed his wisdom. It is truly a matter of life and death. The reality is that there are some here this morning who refuse to listen to the wisdom of the wise and will be eternally judged for the rejection of Christ. And I want to plead with you. Turn to Christ and live. Heed the wisdom. Look to Him who has died in our place, taking upon Himself the wrath of the Father that we could receive the righteousness of the Son. This is our only hope. This is our only sure footing at the judgment. Go to the house of mourning. 
knowing that by your sins, the Apostle Paul tells us, you are condemned already. Weep. Repent. Believe the gospel. It's the way of wisdom. It's the way that Solomon's been pointing us to all along. It's the way of life. Let's pray together. Lord, you are gracious. You are kind. You are good to have given us such wisdom that by it we can live. That we need not chase experiences, that we not need to chase idols, but that we can rest in Jesus. That we can learn from those who are wise. That we can receive the faithful wounds of a friend. Help us, O Lord, to turn away from the kisses of our enemies. To look fully to Christ. That we would consider the serious reality of this life and our death. Help us to live for eternity. To see that every day in this life matters because this life is short. And we have been called to a high calling to make much of Jesus. To glorify you every minute of our lives. Help us to think often, to think deeply on these things. That you would be honored in our lives. That we would have greater joy because we have greater wisdom in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you for Solomon's life. Thank you for men and women who have lived life, who have lived godly lives that each of us has in our lives to turn to, to talk to, to listen to, to be challenged by. Thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy, for your love, for your compassion. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you most ultimately for the finished work of Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.